Welcome to ESIM's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Eriksson and today I am talking to Eileen Chivaud. Eileen is a senior digital policy advisor at the European People's Party, the family of Europe's centre-right parties, where she's monitoring an ever-growing in-trade of new digital initiatives. She took up this position quite recently and was, in the past two and a half years, at the Center for Data Innovation in Brussels, a think tank in the space of the digital economy. And before that, she has been working for Digital Europe, as well as the Hague Center for Strategic Studies. And what I want to talk to Lynn about is Europe and the digital economy. Where is it going? What are the challenges? And what can we expect in the future? Eileen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Frédéric, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you. One thing that I'd like to start with is a piece which quite often surprises me in the European debate about digital policy, and that is that we often start on a note of defensiveness, that digitalization and the broader technological shift around the world right now isn't an area where Europe has agency and a lot to be proud about. I can understand that there is some sensitivities around platforms and that so many of the major platforms in the world aren't European, but platforms, on the other hand, are just one part of the digital economy. And a far bigger part is about digitalization changing many other sectors and leading to higher productivity growth and better paid jobs. Europe has a pretty substantial trade surplus in digital services, and there are many European firms that lead how data is used to transform good sectors like, for instance, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, and medical goods. So where would you say, Eileen, where is this defensiveness coming from? Excellent question. Uh, There are a few drivers to this, but what you're referring to makes me think immediately of this concept of technological or digital sovereignty, which is sometimes called open strategic autonomies, because the, the term is perhaps more amenable to foreign countries and reflects less of a defensiveness kind of stance. And that concept, it's gained currency within European political discourses, and it's now quite omnipresent in many European policies. And France and Germany seem to have inspired its its broader use, by the way. And we have a former EU commissioner, uh, Maria Gabrielle, when she was, she is now commissioner still, but she was at the time, Commissioner for the Economy and Digital Society, Maria Gabrielle, alluded to the term back in 2018, but few EU policy officials would associate digital sovereignty with the EU until perhaps, uh, you know, one or two years ago. That was a turning point when the new European Commission took office. It's been, you know, since then, it's been pursuing various tech policies under that heading. And even some member states, policymakers have been referring to digital sovereignty with with assertiveness. And traditionally, EU nationals have favored the term national sovereignty. So, you know, it's only recently that they've become more palatable to references to European supranationalism, say. Some people have written about this being the as being the Brussels effect, which would convey to the EU a power to transform global markets through regulations, you know, and it extends the rules that it sets globally in various areas from, say, consumer health and safety to antitrust regulation, online content and data protection. Actually, a good example is the EU's privacy law, the, the GDPR, because to some extent, some countries have adopted similar laws. 
And so the EU has become de facto a regulatory standard setter because maybe it's also easier for companies to comply with just one regulatory framework. And that could be the case, you know, with the new digital roadmaps and and tech policy proposals like the white paper on AI and the EU data strategy or the the, even the industrial strategy. And and back to the, you know, the drivers. So behind this narrative, some people think it's because Europe has been, you know, bullied by its traditional allies, particularly in trade policy. And and there have been a few traumas in international security and geopolitics where Europe might have felt that it wasn't consulted enough. Brexit also has shown that if the EU sticks as one, it it can actually impose certain rules and frameworks. So strategic autonomy does reflect uh, an aspiration to control, in fact, the production, deployment, the the application of of key strategic technologies independently from foreign suppliers. And it means... You know, developing uh, European technological alternatives and, and having the capacity to invest in, in new technologies like algorithms, high-performance computing, uh, chips, and also data sharing and data usage tools. But a main driver that's often discussed, by the way, is that you know, on that, Europe is is anxious that it's lagging in in what it's called what's called the global tech race, the global technological race. And that particular dependence on the outside when it comes to critical technologies and that lack of self-reliance and therefore resilience of Europe's economy has become quite obvious to EU governments with the COVID crisis. So there are many fears that the EU could end up in the backseat, ceding markets to others. And so European countries and many others have come to realize that you need to harness or control or somehow develop certain technologies to be able to influence societal, economic, geopolitical outcomes. So you're right that it's not just about having platforms like social media platforms or search browsers, or it's the integration of ICT into virtually all aspects of the economy and and society that's creating a digitally enabled economy that is responsible for generating the lion's share of economic growth and prosperity. And the EU has been quite critical of itself when it comes to its very own obstacles, which it has to overcome if it wants to progress. Of course, you're right. The EU is the the world's largest exporter of digitally enabled services. It's the world's largest trading bloc. And many countries lead the world in, in advanced manufacturing in Europe. Think of how the EU could build new digital business models in, in its large industrial sectors like mechanical engineering, you know, by developing tools for predictive maintenance, for example. You know, we have suppliers of autom- automotive chips, semiconductors. We, we do have some capacity here. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm recently read that the European encryption market and, and methods, uh, which are a promising solution to preserve strategic technologies and infrastructure from you know, foreign interference, that, that's at a boom. So that could be another capability. But, but even knowing that to some extent, we do have good reasons to worry. American tech companies dominate in online search and advertising, cloud, social network, and so on. European companies run their businesses mainly on West cloud infrastructure, Amazon and Microsoft. And Chinese companies provide the equipment to much of Europe's wireless networks. 
And we're dependent on things like rare earth elements, which are essential for high-tech applications, you know, hybrid cars, cell phone speakers, etc. So, you know, we do have a number of critical dependencies. And what Europe has realized is that it sits on the mine of data, particularly industrial data, and is determined to seize this opportunity this time to make sure it doesn't miss that train, especially as it, it is supposed to be in the driver's seat of this one. All right. So, I mean, I think the issue I can't really get my head around understanding, and, and hopefully you can help me here. So, if you take, for instance, the debate we've had around whether we're going to have digital services in EU trade agreements that we negotiate with other countries, there's been sort of a clear defensiveness on the part of EU on, on that type of issues. We've discussed many times over the past years about creating a digital single market and getting rid of different blockages internally in Europe that prevents the ability of new technology to fire up our economy. But even in those type of areas or those type of geographical discussions, I still sense that there is a defensiveness on the part of Europe. And and at least in that case, it can't really be that we are worried about dependencies on other parts of the world, because here we're talking about either things that happens internally within Europe or about prospering even more from the sort of export provest that we have in digitally enabled services. So has this something to do with the political tradition of industry in Europe? Is it that we sort of always put a premium on developments where perhaps industry can prosper, but sometimes when we get into the services sectors, things aren't that prioritized because we're not really sure about the political benefits that will come from it. Could that be the case? I think some people would say that Europe's DNA is very much about a precautionary principle, which you know tends to be about not taking you know as much risk as you could see in, in you know in the American mentality really making sure to discuss the risks and the uh, potentially negative impacts of, well, in our case, could be technology. So I think that's maybe something holding Europe back to some extent. I, I know that when it comes to, maybe we've lost a certain self-confidence because we haven't overcome some obstacles that, you know, these remain. And I know it's very much something policymakers in, in at EU level and member state level, they, they really think about it a lot, but and they're very aware of it. But we we have issues related to you know the lack of interoperability and common standards when it comes to data sharing. We have a lack of adoption of technologies by our businesses. We have maybe a lack of digital literacy, a lack of human capital supply. And, you know, we have also this market, which, well, we're 27 member states that for starters, I mean, it also takes a while to make sure everyone agrees. And then you have a market that comes with 24 different languages, certain issues like diverging intellectual property rules, diverging licensing agreements, different languages. And that makes it harder than for you know, more unified markets to be able to trade and sell in the digital economy. I think that could be another explanation that we kind of miss that, that we don't have that self-confidence. If you look at 
you know, TikTok. This, this is something, if you look at TikTok, you, you, could, you could say we could have generated, we could have created something like that because TikTok is, you know, it's not necessarily US born, but, you know, a couple of issues here is we, we have venture capital investors that maybe lack experience in that space. And again, the fragmentation of our markets and, and regulations that have yet to be, you know, 100% implemented and, and interpreted the same way uh, across the large jurisdictions that might also hold us back. All right, very good. I, I think sort of connected to what you were just saying is, I mean, the debate about digitalization often takes a production view and we pretty seldom talk about the consumption view of things. We rank societies, for instance, on how well they perform on different indicators that measure you know, the origins of firms or platforms, startups and unicorns and digital gazelles. All of that is, of course, important. But from an economic point of view, it really doesn't matter so much where a business comes from. What is far more important, of course, is how good firms and you know, other organizations are at adopting new technology and make sure that they are at the technological frontier in the world. So how do you think Europe, broadly speaking, compare on that issue? Yeah, it makes me think of this whole data localization discussion, you know, sometimes trade restrictions that, of course, are, are you know, are, are counterproductive in, in an economy that doesn't have borders. And I think maybe that's what you're referring to when you said it doesn't matter where a business comes comes from. So I would push back to some extent on what you said about the origin of the business not being so important, by the way. It's it's true that, as mentioned, we, we have a tech adoption problem in, in Europe. So this is also about how good you are at just doing that. And also true is that with today's economy that that's really without borders almost and where value chains are so spread out you, you need others to work on mutually beneficial areas you bring your assets to the table and then you use others assets for complementarity but geography still matters because not all places have the same value systems and, and types of regimes and, and types of economy and the way in which some companies develop and apply technologies has its importance because it can mirror or be a consequence of the types of laws they're subjected to. So if government has the power to force you to give the data you've accumulated on people and other businesses, or if it funds companies to the point that they're practically dependent on a particular regime's goodwill to provide that money, then this is where we might not want to let others develop technologies like AI that can have a huge impact on social equality, you know, freedoms, things we value. But overall, there really are topics and issues for which more global, let's say, overarching frameworks are needed and for which borders just don't apply. It's data, it's data standards, interoperability and sharing. And you have good examples of that in healthcare. You know, there's a lot of discussion today about data using new privacy-preserving technologies that promise to unlock data silos. And we've seen how problematic that's been during the pandemic. And, and progress appears to be slow now. Is this because of bad data infrastructure or privacy or inertia among, among key players? So, by the way, I wanted to give you the example of the, you know, that some answers 
could come from this the the human genome project the human genome project was a huge project to s- sequence and, and assemble the first human genome committed to, to doing so in the, in the open from the start. And in the 90s, uh, researchers laid out the Bermuda principles in which all parties agreed to publish uh, all sequences in public databases within 24 hours without delay or exception. 20 years later, now even more, the situation is actually less rosy. You have researchers telling tales of spending months or years tracking down data sets and only to find dead ends or unusable files and, you know, journal editors and funding agencies struggling to monitor whether scientists are actually sticking to their agreements. So it's telling that the problem of data standards, interoperability and sharing still persists despite being open sourced by design. And in this project, data is stored in more than one place. Researchers tend to deposit the bare minimum to meet compliance requirements and getting data out is hard. There's there's no specific universal policy on on format database or sharing policy. So that's kind of food for thought. Let's follow up on it, uh, Eileen. So, I mean, I think one of the issues that could be of interest to talk about is also if you look at, not perhaps so much on digital policies when it comes to interoperability issues, data integrity type of issues. But if we start even more basic, looking at the data infrastructure, network capacities, digital literacy, how do you think Europe is is comparing on those issues vis-a-vis the rest of the world? I mean, we have on the one hand, some of the most digitalized countries in the world are actually European. And we can see that many of the Central and East European countries have been catching up really, really fast on on the overall digital infrastructure, even in digital literacy. So how do you see the priority for sort of having a policy that looks more up to the capacities of European societies to have access to the infrastructures? Is this still an important issue or have we moved away from them and we should spend time thinking about other issues rather than these type of basic infrastructure issues? We do have a good connectivity distribution. Now, I know that we've, you know, Europe has missed its targets when it comes to 5G. You know, a lot of member states had committed to achieving things like covering uh, at least one city with 5G by the end of last year, and that hasn't been necessarily achieved. Um, I know that, you know, European policymakers are often worried that we're not also reaching those targets in terms of digital skills that um, you know right now we're just just below 60% of us have those digital skills required for today's job so you know there's also when it comes to adoption of technologies by by companies it's about 43% according to a commission and an Ipsos survey 43% of, of companies have adopted a technology like AI, very few of our SMEs have adopted big data analytics or even have a website, still not enough. So again, we're very good at looking at our own weaknesses. Uh, by the way, when I said we're good with connectivity, now I know that 20% of Europeans have access to 5G. So if we're talking about 5G, this is much, you know, it's 
the numbers are not that great compared to the United States, for instance, where you have 76% of the population that have access to 5G. And, and, and the paradox is that we have champions like Nokia or Ericsson when it comes to, to 5G. So even when we seem to have the cards in our hands, it is true that there are, yeah, it's difficult to understand how we don't, we're not getting there. Same with digital skills. You know, we have great universities, we have great research facilities, Somehow we're, well, you know, people say, uh, comment on the fact that we're, we're lagging, but the ambition is really there to accelerate things, especially after the pandemic. The commission has just released a digital compass, which is trying to really set some goals, measurable goals, and some sort of a system to monitor progress of member states on certain things that includes uh, digital skills, but also infrastructure and connectivity. So for example, we want to make sure that the, the, the production of semiconductors goes from 10 to 20%, that we, uh, I think it's uh, 80% of businesses should have adopted big data analytics and AI by 2030. So there's a number of very concrete targets like that lined up and that all major cities should be covered by 5G as well. By the way, the EU is the world producer of the, the machine used to produce the chips globally. You know, and we're talking about semiconductors. And at the same time, it's dependent on foreign supply. And right now, that foreign supply is on pretty shaky grounds. You, you might have followed, you know, the, the trade tensions between uh, China and the US on that, which really hugely impact the automotive um, industry in Europe, and and actually uh, the, also the push of China for semiconductor sovereignty is, is quite a, to me, is a bigger deal than the AI race thing, to be honest. But so when it comes to that digital compass, one of the objectives is to double our, our production of semiconductors and, and onshoring it. And, you know, and I've read that, you know, the biggest customers are foreign tech tech companies, large tech companies, and they're not European companies. So that might, you know, that might not be enough. We, we will need really even more investments, I think. And our industry is still smaller than China in terms of the capacity needed for production. So I think there's a realization that we can do it. And somehow maybe it's because we don't send that signal that investors and companies and all actors need to say, well, this is what we should achieve. And, you know, that's it. Let's do it. Indeed, let's do it. Final question, Aline, and starting with what you just referred to, the digital compass. Looking at the broad policy agenda for Europe and how we can prosper more on the back of digital technology, what do you think are the important areas of policies that should be included, not necessarily in the digital compass, but in a broader type of initiative for Europe to increase our capacity to move our economy with the help of digital technologies? Would you think it's, is it mostly about commercial or regulatory policy, or does it rather go into issues such as education, research and development, digital literacy, the supply of engineers and other skills that we need. So do we need to have a technology-specific policy or are we talking more about generic type of policies that are important in order to improve our capacity to prosper on the back of 
new technologies? Thanks, that's an interesting question. We don't necessarily spend enough time on this. So there are two key pillars that are driving the EU's policies for at least then through the next decade, as mentioned, and digital and green. These are horizontal types of, you know, policies that should be you know, diffused to the, the various initiatives planned. And then some often refer to this issue of technology-specific policies or rules. It's something that has to do with the speed of regulation versus the speed of the technology. But there's a bit of a gap here. For instance, with the GDPR, it took almost a decade to make it happen and implement it. And the risk is that a lot doesn't accommodate for flexibility would provide a static picture of the sectors and then the applications where technologies are developing. So it's the difficult task of policymakers to try to strike the right balance between actual rules and guiding principles while at the same time focusing on the need for Europe to strengthen its competitiveness and, and preserve, um, preserve innovation. Of course, it doesn't have to be a choice between either commercial or regulatory policy. I think uh, the EU might have focused more on the latter in recent years, but, but even then in EU regulatory framework, there's more and more an emphasis on including other efforts needed. And that, that you know, you're referring to, so the EU wants to facilitate access to data and data sharing, but it does recognize that the tools needed to get there also include you know, interoperability, better cybersecurity, more talent, reduce the skills gap, you know, increase digital literacy. There's also more emphasis on connectivity and, and access to online services. So if you look at the proposed framework for AI rules, there is a large part of that, which is about creating an ecosystem of research excellence. So really trying to invest in innovation hubs and, and human capital and, and opportunities with all stakeholders. So it wouldn't be quite right to say that the EU is focusing more on rules. It's also aware that there are milestones to be achieved in, in many areas, uh, including trade, education, R&D. Now, let's not forget that when it comes to the areas of priorities, the EU cannot do it all. It's not, it's not just up to the EU, but also to its member states, because many competencies are still there. It's like in education and healthcare. And there was something else I wanted to add is about, you know, the, the EU is increasingly focusing on commercial policies um, after perhaps having put a regulatory stamp on various areas. And one driver behind that is that Europe has woken up to the China challenge and it's, it's started to realize and say a bit louder that China is a strategic cooperation partner an economic competitor and a systemic rival, and it increasingly wants to address this, you know, to address China's trade policies. It's trying to do that not by copy-pasting the U.S. approach, or you know, it's but it's trying to carve out perhaps some sort of a third way. So it's figuring out also where member states can agree to work with the new U.S. administration, of course. So I think this is really yeah, one point I wanted to to emphasize here, and I'm. On commercial aspects of things, we have allies that are powerful countries that have a lot to give uh, in terms of data storage, data talent, private sector companies, uh, innovation, R&D capabilities, powerful investments. And, and on our end, we can build on existing strengths, sharing know-how and benefit from others' capabilities. And, you can see that in AI, smart cities, and 5G and cloud. And 
to close the loop on this, that's, that's also true for regulatory policies, actually, for setting norms and standards. Common frameworks could be a compromise for global data protection projects, for instance, a good starting point if you use frameworks aimed to encourage improved privacy engineering practices and, say, privacy by design that ultimately protect the privacy rights of individuals. And so, yeah, beyond that, there's potential in broader strategic alliances as well and trade and AI. There are a few things the EU can do to direct its objectives to you know, influence foras like WTO, the OECD, uh, GPAI, ITU, you know, international standards organization. So it could take the lead on that and, and include its allies in this. Aline, thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast.